It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Wednesday, November 18th, 2009. We're actually going to get to email today. I know you're all going to fall out of your chairs. You can't believe it's true, but it's true. We are... We're, going to attempt to answer some listener email. Long overdue, by the way. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there by uh, church types and religious folk, if you would. And uh, the, the sad part is is that Christians are, are not called to proclaim their own ideas. We, we actually have a book. It's called the Bible. We are called to correctly proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, but <laughs> uh, that's just so old school. Who wants to do that anymore? So uh, <laughs> that being the case, there's a whole bunch of people saying a whole lot of crazy things out there. And uh, this program seeks to kind of wade into those murky waters, if you would, and see if we can shed some light on the subjects that are brought up here at Fighting for the Faith. Anyway, I need to remind you all that uh, your listener experience is very important to us here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, as we dive into our program today, we want to make sure that you have the greatest possible positive user uh, listener experience that you possibly can. And so if you have the ability to listen to this program in a way where you're comfortable, or if you would like to go ahead and uh, we losing weight while listening to Fighting for the Faith is a great thing. So listening on the couch, listening on the treadmill, listening on a recumbent bike or one of those ellipticals, uh, perfectly fine way of enjoying Fighting for the Faith. Listening in your car on your commute, perfectly great thing too. Uh, on a commuter train on a, on a subway, perfectly great way to listen to the program. Uh, and if you are are listening at home and have the ability to kick up your feet, listening while wearing fuzzy bunny slippers does definitely enhance the listener experience. And uh, with this caveat, warm weather, not not a good thing if you're going to be wearing fuzzy bunny slippers. And, of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we do not have a problem with that. Keep in mind, Jesus turned water into wine. All right, looking at today's program here, let's see here. Okay, we're going to do some email today. Believe it or not, I've got I've got three emails I want to get to today. Um, we're going to be listening to a seeker-driven pastor answer the question, are Mormons Christian? <clears throat> and uh, and then we've got uh, news from over this overseas, uh, over uh, on the other side of the pond, if you would, the Atlantic Ocean. We've got a headline here, British Equality Bill could lead councils to clap down on Christmas decorations. And then, of course, the Church of England doesn't want you to use your credit card this Christmas. We'll be taking a look at that. And then our sermon today is a good sermon uh, uh, preached by the Reverend uh, Pastor uh, uh, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, who is a regular listener and one of the fact-checkers for uh, 
uh, this program. He does a fine job of historically fact-checking some stuff and chiming in from time to time, and his contributions are always very good. And uh, he did a sermon uh, specifically on a on a verse. Now, I know you're sending a verse. Yeah, yeah, he did it on a verse in the book of Daniel, chapter 11. And uh, Pastor Charmley, again, uh, he, he's, he's got a fantastically wonderful uh a uh, strong, deep uh, voice, British accent, and just, it's a fine, fine sermon. And what I like about it is his emphasis that good, uh, in the sermon, that uh, good works uh, really flow from preaching for uh, faith. And so we're going to be listening to that particular sermon uh, in the second hour today. So we got lots of ground to cover. Please make yourself comfortable. And uh, before I get into email, I, I do have a news story that I have got to read. The headline for this story reads, Board of Directors for Megachurch Corp. Forced Jesus Christ to step down as leader of their organization. Yeah, this is quite a a headline here. Uh, Lake Forest, California, the Board of Directors for Megachurch Corp. announced today that they were forcing the resignation of Jesus Christ as the head of their organization. The reasons cited for Jesus' abrupt departure from Megachurch Corp. included Jesus' increasing lack of understanding of the unique needs of 21st century consumers, as well as marketing data that clearly showed that Jesus' old-school message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name was just not resonating with today's tech-savvy religious customers. Rick Warren, chairman of the board for Megachurch Corp., in an email sent to the media said, Quote, this was a tough decision to have to make. Jesus has been the head of our organization since its inception, but Jesus' insistence on sound doctrine and a core message that conjures up visions of sin, hell, God's wrath, and Jesus' scandalous uh, bloody death on the cross between two common thieves just isn't relevant anymore. Said Warren, despite our insistence uh, at previous board meetings that Jesus get his head out of the first century and update his messaging to meet the felt needs of today's religious seekers, Jesus stubbornly refused to take our counsel and sage business advice. Ultimately, we had to think about the future of our organization, and it was clear that we just wouldn't meet our growth targets if we continued to use a 2,000-year-old message. Bill Hybels, senior member of the board of directors for Megachurch Corp., commenting on Jesus' forced resignation, said, This decision was long overdue. Truth be told, we don't need Jesus to grow Megachurch Corp. Now that Jesus is no longer at the helm, we expect our growth to skyrocket. And then Joel Osteen, junior uh, board member for Megachurch Corp., sounded uh, relieved, said Osteen, With Jesus out of the way, we can finally give religious consumers exactly what they want to hear. Now, Wall Street received the news of Jesus' forced resignation favorably, and Mega Church Corp's stock price shot up nearly $7 a share at $6.66 a share in late afternoon trading. So, interesting turn of events there over at Mega Church Corp. Apparently, they've forced Jesus Christ to... uh, uh, resign as the head of their organization. No news on whether or not Jesus uh, got a good, uh, you know, cushy uh, severance package. Uh, details on that apparently have not been made public. So I just wanted to pass that uh, particular news story along to you because I thought it was important to pass along. All right, now with that in mind, we're going to dive into our email today. I got three emails today, kind of all in a similar vein. And uh, the first is from uh, Simon uh, from uh, Norway. 
And uh, Simon, thank you for uh, listening out there in Norway. Let me read the email I received from him. He says, Chris, I'm telling my Christian friends about the importance of using the law to convict people of sin so people can know they are sinners and uh, and want to hear the gospel. I, I'm revealing uh, to my Christian friends the heresy of Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen with grounded biblical arguments. Uh, what do I hear back? Well, that I'm a Christian trapped in a box, that, that I criticize people that God anoints and uses, and that I'm a moron, uh, plus much, much more. If I keep this up, I won't have many Christian friends left. I'm also somewhat disturbed about my church because my pastor says that God speaks to us in many ways. No, he doesn't. He speaks to us through his word and through his creation, special and general revelation. Now, I'm not denying miracles, but God doesn't speak audibly uh to us or through some sort of inner voice, even if we, uh, if we were, if he were to, it would not add on to what his written word conveys. I, I'm going through a hard time, and I know from what you've said that you've gone through similar experiences. At least my wife is okay with me. Please respond if you can. All right, Simon, <clears throat> I know exactly what you're going through, and um, th- I think this clearly falls under the under the category of being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. All of the things that you've conveyed here, that you're you're sharing with your Christian friends, the importance of using law to convict people of their sin, uh, that you're exposing the heresy of Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen with grounded biblical arguments, and that their their biggest argument against you is is that you're you're a Christian trapped in a box. Um, Or or, one of their other favorite ways of putting it is is that they, they would say that you're putting God in a box. Now, this is really kind of a lame argument, and keep this in mind. We're not putting God in a box, um, but it is true that you've been put in a box. And the name of that box is Jesus' Sheep Pen. You are one of Jesus' sheep, and he has put you into the sheep pen to protect you. This is where he wants you to be. And so uh, Jesus does not want you as one of his sheep out there freewheeling it, if you would, uh, among the wolves. I mean, the sheep need their shepherd to protect them. And so uh, you're doing a fine job there. And as a result of what you're doing, you are experiencing persecution. This, it, funny enough, uh, you're being persecuted in uh, among people who call themselves Christians and supposedly identify with Christ. The fact that they're persecuting you, though, shows you something uh, about uh, what it is that they're up to. Now, as far as what the right thing to do here in this situation, what should you do? You're you're right that you may you may end up not having any Christian friends left. Um, that does not relieve you though of your duty to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to your friends. Now, in your particular situation, um, it's I, it's gonna it's gonna be tough. It's just it's going to be tough now. I, I want you to listen to some other emails that I've been getting, and I want to see if I can kind of, you know, give some strategies to all of you guys at the same time. Now, Ted writes, and I haven't looked where Ted is from, but Ted writes, he says, oh, he's from the Chicago area. He says, hey, Chris, I just wanted to send you a message saying thank you for uh, opening my eyes to the things going on at my church. I have attended Willow Creek for two years now, and I was drawn to the church at first because of the music and modern field, but quickly found myself studying the Bible on my own and listening to podcasts. During the week, not really sure what I was missing at Willow. I am so glad that I found Fighting for the Faith. The sermon reviews have taught me how to distinguish between law and gospel. I now have a hard time listening to the sermons, sermons in quotes, at Willow Creek without wanting to walk out. 
Um, I am torn because I have many friends at Willow, and I want to go to another church, but I feel like I would be abandoning them for uh, ever realizing what is uh, going on. Do you think there is any hope in changing the elders' attitudes in a church that size? Should I even try or just move on? Now, so I've got Simon is experiencing persecution among his Christian friends. Ted is asking what he needs to do because, you know, he is kind of, you know, he realizes that it's a losing battle at um, Willow Creek. And then Denitra writes, she says, I've emailed you before about the Word, Faith, Prosperity churches I used to attend. I, I think this would be helpful for many of us who have left our churches and now attend solid biblical uh, biblically sound ones, what do I say to those who are still a part of those old churches? When I talk to people who are members of those churches, I always try to proclaim the true gospel of Christ and him crucified. But what do I say to the ones who think I am personally attacking their pastors by calling out their false doctrine and theology? How do you handle these situations? Uh, notice the themes here that are going on. Um, folks, This, these are all exactly the types of uh, things that you will experience um, when you proclaim sound doctrine and biblical truth. Now, working backwards, I'm going to work backwards. Denitra, here, what you say to the people who feel like you're attacking their pastors is you, you need to make it clear. You basically need to say, listen, you know, I'm not attacking them personally. I'm not calling them gunky heads and saying that their mom dresses them funny. You know, Instead, I'm pointing out uh, the error of their ways. Now, in in that particular, and let me give you a little bit of biblical backing as far as what you would do in this situation. First of all, let's take a look at uh, the Bereans. Hang on, uh, Berea. Okay, uh, Acts chapter seventeen. Okay, uh, Acts chapter seventeen. Um, I'm going to uh, con- read the story of the Bereans, and you know, and this is a story that you can read to your friends, and I'll, I'll kind of show you the right angle to work on this particular verse with them. Um, and uh, so, the Acts chapter 17 uh, opens with uh, Paul in uh, Thessalonica, and uh, and things did not go well for him there. That just things went really, really, really bad. It says verse five of chapter 17, but the Jews were jealous. Of Paul, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring out uh, bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, "These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here." And Jason was wel- has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, uh, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond and then let him go. So things, you know, I'm telling you, proclaiming sound biblical doctrine and Christ and him crucified for your sins is dangerous stuff. It's just dangerous business. You can get in all kinds of trouble. Now, we read verse 10. Now, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of the prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now, I want to point something out to you. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, this is a man who was a, is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus personally appeared to, to the Apostle Paul, and Jesus personally taught the Apostle Paul the gospel and the Christian faith. And so, uh, you know, the doctrine that we, that, uh, the Apostle Paul puts forward, he, he learned from direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, I mean, if anybody could make the claim that they were, quote, above reproach when it comes to their doctrine and their theology, it could have been the Apostle Paul. But what we read here in Acts chapter 17 is that the Bereans, that they had a more noble character than the Thessalonians, and they received the gospel message that the Apostle Paul was preaching with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And so the scriptures hold the Bereans up not as an example of of pernicious people who are being divisive and just not towing the line and people who should just be quiet and receive uh, the message without complaint uh, or questioning from, quote, God's anointed apostle. No, in, in fact, they're held up as good characters. And even the apostle Paul, what he preached is subject to scrutiny by going into the scriptures to see if what he was teaching and preaching was true. Now, if that was the case with the Apostle Paul, then certainly uh, uh, a pastor in a, in a congregation who ha- you know who is not an apostle, who is not an eyewitness to the resurrection, um, is is subject to that exact same kind of scrutiny. And it's not a bad thing; it's a good thing. It's not, it's not being pernicious. It's being, uh, it's being faithful to God's word. So, Dimitri, what you need to do is point out to your friends, say, listen, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, divisive here, but what I'm doing is I'm doing the job of a Berean. I'm comparing what these pastors are saying in the name of God to the word of God. And when they, when there is a conflict, when God's word says something that contradicts what they've said, the pastor's wrong. And it's not unloving to point that out. It's actually very loving to point it out because uh, bad doctrine has eternal ramifications. And so, uh, you know, it, you, this is, this is a labor that you're doing in love and God's word, God's word praises the Bereans. And um, and so it's the right thing for Christians to do to test what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, let me give you an uh, let me give you another thing here, and uh, this is you know and you know, this it might be that just your your friends are not aware of these passages, but if you were to take a look in the scriptures and you were to do a simple word search uh, like on a computerized Bible like at BibleGateway.com in the New Testament for the word rebuke. And, uh, you know, just look for the word rebuke and you'll find a few verses that talk about, um, you know, the proper role of rebuking. Okay. It, like, for instance, okay, First um, uh, Timothy uh, chapter 5, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may rest, uh, that, that the rest may stand in fear. That's First Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. We find out that rebuking, uh, an unrepentant sinner whose people who persist in sin is actually something that Christians are commanded to do. Or 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Okay, So Christians are not only called to um, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God, 
They're also called to rebuking those who persist in sin and those who teach false doctrine. For instance, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, talking about an elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, or t- Titus one thirteen. this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Okay, and or, de- or Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And so the idea here is, is that there is a Christian duty to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. This is not a bad thing. This is a noble thing. And there is a Christian duty to rebuke those who teach sound a false doctrine so there's a, a christian duty to uh, to do that that being the case denitra in your case what i would definitely recommend doing is spending some time and soberly unemotionally walking people through the passages that i've just taken you through and and basically say listen i'm not attacking your pastor personally however what he is teaching is not true and you, my friend, have a duty to compare what he says in the name of God to what God's word says. And if there's a discrepancy, your pastor's wrong. And uh, you either need to leave or, or call your pastor to repentance and or both, depending. Okay. Now, uh, that being, okay, so working my way backwards here. Now, coming to Ted's email, coming back to it, Ted you're at Willow Creek, and let's let's kind of talk some brass tacks here, okay? I've been in a similar situation to you, and um, I think something that you you might want to consider here is is that you've been piratized. <clears throat> That's a it's a word I made up in reference to pirate Christian radio, but um, here's the idea: you 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 have had your eyes open now. That being the case, my big question for you, Ted, is how can you best serve your friends who are at Willow Creek? And um, getting them to listen to my program may not even be a feasible thing. I mean, there's some people who just can't stand this program, and, and ha- making them or encouraging them to listen to it would be like having them sit down and uh, and listen to somebody scratching their fingernails against a chalkboard. That's just not That may not be a feasible thing to do, Okay. Um, so, uh, let's, let's answer a couple of your questions at the tail end of your email, just, um, up front. Do I think there's any hope in changing the elders attitudes at Willow Creek? The answer is absolutely not. No way, Jose. They have, they have procedures and policies and, uh, things in place to ensure that nothing, uh, that, that, uh, that no change in the elders' attitudes can come about as a result of it burbling up from within the congregation. That's just not going to happen. They are absolutely married to their their uh, corporate business structure and their way of doing things. And, um, and if you were to try to overtly convince them of, of changing course, you would actually be shown the door. And, uh, and if you were at some, some other smaller purpose driven congregations, they actually might even have a police, um, you know, order for you to not come on the property. I mean, I, I'm not making that up. Um, I've talked to an email, uh, received emails from plenty of people who've had that happen to them. Okay. So the question is, should you even try or just move on? Well, hang on a second here. 
Um, if your goal is to change the attitude of the folks at Willow Creek, no, you shouldn't try to do that. Okay, now, Ted, I'm going to recommend two things for you. Number one, okay, number one, find a good church where you're going to hear Christ and him crucified for your sins every single Sunday. Uh, preferably, you can receive the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, every week or a couple of times a month. And um, and uh, and if at all possible, that they have that this can occur at a time early in the morning or uh, on a Sunday evening. And the reason I'm saying that is, is because I'm going to recommend a very difficult course for you. And, uh, and I, I know what I'm asking of you is a lot. Okay, again, I, I'm, I, I, this is advice on how to best serve your neighbor. Okay, the, the people that you mentioned in your, um, your email that I'm most concerned about are your friends who are at Willow Creek. Okay, uh, I have many friends at Willow, you say. Okay, so here's what I'm going to recommend you do. Find a church that's going to feed you. You need to be fed. You are you are sheep in God's flock. You cannot go you cannot go week after week after week after week and starve to death. You need to hear God's word and you need the Lord's supper. Plain and simple. This these are things that you need. Okay? So you need to make sure that you are that in that sense that you're taking care of yourself that way. But and I'm not trying to erase anything here. Uh, the second part of this plan is that as long as they would have you attend Willow Creek with your friends. So the idea is is that you are being fed and you're attending Willow Creek. And what I would recommend doing is beginning a tradition, okay? Create an ad hoc small group study with your friends immediately after the service. Um, have them come to your home or your apartment or wherever you live and 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 make it so that you guys can have some fellowship together and um and and share a meal together after the service and the goal that is is to pick apart biblically the sermon that you heard so that you guys can quote go deeper into what God's word teaches this is the idea okay you you know, you want to meet with your friends and you're not going to judge them for going to going to Willow Creek. You're not going to basically say you're a bunch of people who don't get it. You got to wake up. Don't you understand what's going on? It's not your job to wake them up. It's God's job, and he does that through his word. So the idea here is, is that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you attend with your friends. You don't even have to tell them you're going to another church if you don't want to. You attend with your friends and you invite your friends over for a, you know, an ad hoc study. And what you're going to do while it's still fresh on your mind, you're going to dig into the scriptures and really take a look, hard look at what's going on at what's being taught there. Here's the idea. By doing that, you're going to, by example, and, and as a de facto leader of the group, since this is your idea, show them how context plays into it and steer the conversations in such a way that you can bring up law and gospel, bi sound biblical context, and Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That's the idea. Now, what will happen then is that 
you are then ministering to your friends. And I admit it's absolutely subversive what you're doing. That's how pirates operate. We're very subversive. <laughs> but the idea is, is that as long as you're not make, being a stench in the nostrils of Bill Hybels and the, uh, and the leadership team there at Willow Creek, the idea is, is to simply, as a good Berean Christian, open up the scriptures and to compare what what is being said at the pulpit. Not not that you're doing a side by side comparison, as if you're looking for something that's wrong. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to dig into the scriptures with your friends, so that when they see the to- the text in its full context, they will begin to see the contradictions. Not because you're trying to force the issue. Uh, per se, but because you want them to see the fuller the fuller context of what God's word teaches. When that happens, God the Holy Spirit is going to do what God the Holy Spirit does. He opens people's eyes. And so the the idea here is is that find a way to lovingly and subversively, shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, the, 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 is the phrase that comes to mind. Reach out to your friends and proactively find a way to give them God's word in such a way that they'll be able to see the truth. Plain and simple. Okay. And uh, let me know, let me know if you decide to take that advice and how things go. Again, what I'm asking of you it requires a lot of time and it requires a lot of commitment. And um, I think your friends are worth it. I, I think your friends are worth it. Keep in mind, God doesn't need your good works. You're not doing this because you're going to earn brownie points with God, uh, but your friends at Willow need your good work, and they need them desperately right now. Now, coming back to Simon. Simon, I think this this the advice that I've given Denitra as well as to Ted uh, now kind of shed some light coming back to your to your uh, email. Um, find a way to continue to serve your friends and um, do it lovingly and patiently in a way and opening up and unfolding the scriptures and understand they're going to push back on you and that's okay. Let them push back and then give them sound biblical answers for the things that you are showing up and lovingly bring them back into the sheep pen and bring them to the point where they, you know, remind them that God's word is true even if a man lies about it. That their commitment is to God and to Christ and to his word, not to Benny Hinn, not to any particular pastor, not even to you. And folks, your commitment isn't to me at all. Everything I say is subject to God's word. It needs You need to be comparing what I'm saying to God's word. Anyway... But, uh, Simon, consider yourself to be blessed that you are experiencing persecution for the name of Christ. And uh, Ted and Denitra, um, based upon the emails that you sent me, it's, it's just a matter of time, if you haven't already, where you'll begin to experience persecution uh, for the name of Christ. Not because you're being a stench in people's nostrils, but because Christ is really the stench in people's nostrils. They want to worship their own God, and they want to worship them their way. And by preaching the truth... And countering false doctrine with biblical uh, doctrine, what you're doing is stepping on people's toes because you are tainting, you're making their idols look stupid. So need to keep that in mind and pray, pray, pray.
pray for your friends pray it's not and and understand that the 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 persecution the cold shoulders the loss of friends all of that kind of stuff it's worth it, it to preach the truth because when you preach the truth keep in mind the scriptures say that one plants and another waters and it's God who gives the increase so when you you, you give somebody God's sound biblical word and you give them what the truth you give them the truth you give them the scriptures the scriptures and what the scriptures teach I, I'm telling you, God the Holy Spirit has a way of doing his thing when you do that because his word, what does the scripture say? His word doesn't return to him void. So give him the truth and trust God to do what God does. You're not the one convincing them anyway. It's God's word, the Holy Spirit, who's doing that. So, all right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. 
Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to this program could cause you to lose friends and not influence people. Well, actually, you can influence them with the gospel, but again, listening to this program, it could cost you relationships. We've got people who've lost boyfriends and girlfriends as a result of listening to this program. I'm telling you, this is the red pill that opens your eyes to the matrix. And if your eyes have been opened to the matrix and you now understand the nature of what's going on and you've been set free from the matrix of good works and false religion, uh, your your friends need your good works. They need the gospel too. And uh, pray that God gives you an opportunity to set them free by proclaiming the truth to them and proclaiming Christ and him crucified for their sins. It's good stuff. And uh, they need the red pill every bit as much as you do. Uh, by the way, that's a reference to the movie The Matrix. And I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And the only way we're able to bring this program to you is through the generous gifts uh, that you guys uh, send in on a monthly basis. And right now we are looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. And uh, the way you do this is to visit fightingforthefaith.com, fightingforthefaith.com, and uh, click on the Join Our Crew button. It's a mere $6.95 a month. Think of it this way, two and a half gallons of gas. Two and a half gallons of gas is what this costs on a monthly basis. And uh, and when we get to a thousand listeners, and the reason why this is so critical for us is because we have a uh, we the, a, a contributor, a, a financial contributor to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, who will no longer be able to contribute after February of 2010. And so uh, we're in a scramble to hit our first financial goal, and that goal is to be able to pay our bills <laughs> completely independently of this. Uh, of this uh, generous financial contributor. And so uh, that's why the uh, the Fighting for the Faith crew is so important. And there are perks. You get a, When you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, you do get access to our Fighting for the Faith 
Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of plundered theological resources designed to help you go uh, deeper into God's Word, biblical doctrine, and sound theology. And uh, so uh, look for that. I, I send those emails out a couple of times a week. Uh, for those of you who've joined. Uh, all right. So, and if you'd like to uh, donate a flat amount, you can click on our donate button on our website or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. Let's see here. I got two stories from across the pond. And uh, tis the season for arguing about church decorations. I just, in case you can't tell, I'm just really not all that incensed if a city council, even if it's not in the United States, is not all that hip about uh, putting up Christmas decorations. I mean, listen, the the Christmas holiday, the way it's been spun uh, by the capitalist system, I mean, it's basically your patriotic duty to go and spend money during Christmas in order to keep the economy afloat. I mean, that's pretty much what it's boiled down to, uh, capitalistic consumerism and baptized in some kind of a strange ghost of Christmas past kind of way that makes you remember that maybe somewhere in the back of your head you can remember that Jesus has something to do with Christmas, you know, um, yeah, you know, and so that being the case, I mean, I really don't get bent out of shape when, you know, when there's political disputes as to whether or not to have a manger on public grounds. Again, I don't expect the, uh, I don't expect governments to carry the water for Christians. I just, I, I don't. And not only that, I don't particularly like it. When Christianity gets co-opted by politics, just not a good big fan of that either. Um, and at the same time, I understand that there's, you know, that there's freedom of expression, freedom of religion. And, but uh, I like to keep uh, religion and politics, at least in the, it, you know, any kind of uh, that could some kind of a, a way that could be misconstrued that the government is endorsing. A particular religion, I, I'm just not a big fan of it. Just uh, you know, and uh, you know, I and I I don't care if the religion that's being quote endorsed or put forward is is Christianity. I last time I checked, Uncle Sam is a miserable, miserable evangelist. Just you know, I mean, when you look at the United States currency, in God we trust. Which one do we trust in? It, it's it's the choose your own God uh, civic religion. Uh, I mean, American politicians and uh, and and think and you know political thinkers have known for a long time that uh, that uh, the government benefits from the civic religion that's being put out there, and uh, I, I I don't believe in their civic religion. I I trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe in the uh, the the dead Jewish guy who rose again from the grave after he was brutally murdered on a cross. Um, you know, on the eve of the Passover under Pontius Pilate, that's the, that's the God I believe in. And I don't think there is any other, I, I'm not into generic gods. I just, I'm not a big God talker. I'm a big Jesus guy. So, and, and when I say I'm a big Jesus guy, I, I'm overweight. <clears throat> Working on it though, 18 pounds now and down 18 pounds. I'm pretty, pretty happy about that. All right, 
So from the Telegraph in the UK, going across the pond here, the uh, headline reads, Equality Bill Could Lead Councils to Clamp Down on Christmas Decorations. Let's find out what this is all about. Um, this is by Matthew Moore of the Telegraph in the UK. Uh, Christmas celebrations could be canceled to avoid offending people of other faiths due to the complex equality bill Catholic bishops have warned. Christmas celebrations themselves could be canceled? I mean, are you not allowed to celebrate Christmas in your home? At your church? Um, legislation championed by Harriet Harman, the equalities minister. Equalities minister. Oh, boy, that's that's a ministry of uh, confusion, I'm sure. Uh, Harriet Harman, the equalities minister and deputy labor leader, risks having a chilling effect on religious expression, according to Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. In evidence presented at the parliamentary committee scrutinizing the bill, the conference said that local authorities may clamp down on Christmas decorations in a misguided attempt to comply with the complex regulations. Um, I, 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 can we get a little bit of uh, clarification? Uh, those of you who live in the UK, um, are, uh, is there a threat that uh, that Christmas decorations on private homes are going to be clamped down on? At churches, would they be clamped down on? The bill obliges all public bodies, now that would be governmental, to promote equality and to fight discrimination, raising the prospect of campaign groups bringing legal action against councils for policies perceived as offensive to minorities. <laughs> oh, man. Can we <laughs> can we actually get some real crimes on the book? I mean, I, I, I offend people all the time on this program. I, this program is very offensive to some people. And, uh, and <laughs> apparently I'm committing crimes in the, in, in the UK. I, see, I wonder if I wanted to travel to the UK, if I would be allowed in based upon the fact that I say so many offensive things on this program, like, you know, homosexuals are, are committing a sin, uh, that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, things like that. Um, Quote, under the existing legislation, we have seen the development of a risk-averse culture with outcomes as ridiculous as reports of local authority instructing tenants to take down Christmas lights in case they might offend Muslim neighbors. Ah, there we go. Instructing tenants, local authority instructing tenants. That would be people in their homes because they might uh, offend a Muslim neighbor. Wouldn't want to offend those Muslim neighbors now, would we, with our twinkly little Christmas lights? Uh, but then again, uh, Muslims, uh, they'll, they'll feign of, uh, being offended under any and all circumstances as a means of uh, being subversive uh, you know, in, in favor of trying to instill Sharia law there. Keep in mind, they are waging a jihad against Great Britain. And so I just want to let you all know that. Uh, or of authorities removing the word Christmas out of cultural sensitivity to everyone except Christians, the conference warned. If this bill is serious about equality, everything possible must be done to avoid having a chilling effect on religious expression and practice. A spokesman for the conference said that it cons its concerns about Christmas originally submitted to the committee in May were intended to be il illustrative examples of the very serious concerns held by senior Catholics. The bishop, uh, bishops have also expressed fears that the equality bill would force church care homes to remove crucifixes from their walls in case they offend atheist cleaners. Yeah, could you imagine some poor atheist, you know, that they've hired to come wax the floors 
at, a, at an elderly care facility there in Great Britain is, you know, just minding their own business, listening to their atheistic podcasts or music, waxing the floor, and they look up and there they see Jesus hanging dead on the cross for their sins. I mean, could you imagine how offended they could possibly be? Uh, forget the fact that it's the Catholic Church that's actually signing the check that they receive every week uh, for cleaning the floors. And it's like no secret that, you know, Catholics are, you know, <laughs> proclaiming that they're a religious organization that, uh, you know, favors Jesus, um, celebrates Christmas, you know, has crucifixes. Ay, 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 ay. The whole world has gone crazy. Anyway. So the Equalities Office insisted that the bill would have no effect on public authorities that wish to mark religious festivals. Of course, local councils can still put up Christmas tree lights or mark other religious ceremonies, uh, such as Diwali, Eid, or Ramadan, a spokesman said. So there you have it. Uh, the, uh, the Ministry of uh, Religious Mischief, uh, otherwise known as the, as the Equalities uh, Ministry there in Great Britain. Uh, you know, again, I don't mind if government authorities don't have Christmas trees. I, I, again, I could care less about that. But what I do care about is if the government is cracking down on private citizens who, uh, who are celebrating uh, you know, the, the Christmas holiday with twinkly lights or, or their own private nativity scenes, then we've got a problem. I mean, yeah, we have he, he, the last time I checked in Western cultures, we have the right to express our religious beliefs. All right. <laughs> Talking about expressing religious beliefs. <clears throat> this next headline reads Church of England says don't use credit cards this Christmas. Does the Church of England have anything biblical to offer the world? At all. I mean, I'm just, I've just read the headline and I'm thinking, have these guys forgotten that they have a gospel to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to exalt and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified and the only savior for the world uh, in whom there is no, sal- uh, sa- there, apart from whom there is no salvation? Uh, don't they have anything like that to, that they could possibly be busying themselves with? Instead, we've got this wonderful tale from The Telegraph in the U.K., written by Harold Wallop uh, there in the U.K. Uh, The Church of England has told shoppers not to use credit cards this Christmas if they want to avoid a terrible New Year. I did not make that up. Okay, the church has broadened its Christmas message this year. Broadened. No, actually, it sounds to me like they've completely uh, lost the Christmas message this year by looking beyond the meaning of the nativity to give advice to consumers on the high street. No, I did, that is... Ah! Let me read the sentence again. The Church of... Uh, has broadened, this would be the Church of England, has broadened its Christmas message this year by looking beyond the meaning of the nativity to give advice to consum- to consumers on the high street. So we're not going to focus on the nativity and what that means. We're going to look beyond it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to tell people, don't use their credit cards. I, can't you just see Satan right now locked up inside of his uh, of his fortress, shaking, and his boots shaking and going, oh, no. What are we going to do? They're, the Church of England, they've practically checkmated us. How are we supposed to deceive the nations 
if they're out there warning people not to use their credit cards. Oh, this was our favorite way of sending people to hell by convincing them to use a credit card. Without now the Church of England, they've completely shut us down. Our the satanic domain has been is now shrinking as a result of the fact that the Church of England has so bravely thwarted Satan and his forces by telling people not to use a credit card. <sighs> Let me continue reading. Using cash rather than credit cards will help shoppers budget properly and to avoid going in debt. You think? Really? <clears throat> the, the, the church said, quote, whether you spend 10 pounds or a thousand pounds on a credit card, it's one slip and one signature, but with cash, you, you really feel the difference. With friends like this, who needs enemies? We continue. The advice is given in a three-part video cast, a three-minute three minute broadcast shown on the Internet, presented by Dr. John Preston, the church's national stewardship uh, officer, entitled, Wishing You an Affordable Christmas. Hang on a second here. Let me pull this up on YouTube. I would like to hear this profoundly Satan-busting advice that looks beyond the meaning of the nativity um, to help us have an affordable Christmas. I mean, I, wow, I'm so glad the church is finally sticking it to Satan and his dominion by having us not use credit cards. With Christmas just a few weeks away, the shops are full of present ideas and Christmas shoppers. Millions and millions of pounds will be spent in the run-up to Christmas on gifts and food. In fact, Christmas Day, one survey shows, costs an average of £564 per family. And that doesn't include any presents. So, if very sensibly with the UK still in recession, you're trying to make the festive season a bit more affordable this year, Christmas shopping shouldn't start here, because we need to think and plan ahead. Well, it's a fact that those who panic shop tend to spend more. And to help you budget properly on the presents that you want to buy, presents for a favourite auntie, for the kids, uh, or whatever, I've compiled this spreadsheet to help you with it. Now <clears throat> uh, Dr. Uh, Preston, um, not to sound um, disrespectful, um, but could you tell us which of the apostles uh, used a spreadsheet to uh, inform the people in the Roman Empire the importance of staying out of debt? What does this have to do with the incarnation of God in human flesh? That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? Jesus Christ, born, our great God and Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords, Emmanuel, you've heard of him, you've, uh, <clears throat> joy to the world, the Lord has come. Maybe we should rewrite this uh, in, in, you know, in, in light of this new effort on the part of the, quote, Church of England, Joy to the world, the credit cards are cut. Let Earth stay out of debt. Now it's available for you to download for free at www.cve.anglican.org slash debt slash Christmas. What it enables you to do is to enter uh, ideas for each of the people that you want to buy presents for and what you think it's going to cost. You can then tot it up and see whether that's going to be more 
than the budget you'd like to spend this year. It's really easy to use, and it'll help you save loads of money. Oh, <laughs> will it save anybody? Well, I mean, will anybody actually repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins as a result of this money-saving spreadsheet that the Anglican uh, Church has thrown together, encouraging people to not use their credit cards this Christmas? Will anybody actually be saved as a result of this thing? One of the first steps is to start to benchmark how much your present ideas will cost. And you can do that by looking online. This is the gospel according to British accountants. And a couple of online retailers to get an idea of what something's going to cost before venturing out onto the high street. Okay, you want to know something really funny? (laughs) I just realized this. This is hilarious. As of the time that I am recording this particular edition of Fighting for the Faith... Uh, this is a story that did a, a, you know, was published on November 17th, 2009 at 8 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And, um, and as of this broadcast, this video, Wishing You an Affordable Christmas, put out by the Anglican Church, has been viewed exactly 272 times. Apparently it hasn't gone viral yet. So here, I'm looking for a video game for my son. Staring at the same game seems to cost, just looking at four websites, anywhere from £12 up to 24 That's really helpful. Um, before I go out shopping, um, I've, got, I've got a really clear idea of what it's likely to cost me if I buy online. Now, most of us, however much we like buying online, will end up venturing out onto the high street at some point. So here's the final tip for today. Consider using cash instead of plastic. When we pay with pound notes, um, it, it, we really get a good idea of how much something's costing. Whether we spend ten pounds. Like I said, with friends like this in the Christian church, who needs enemies? <laughs> I mean, we just read a story about the, you know, about, you know, some Christmas lights not being welcome in, you know, in some places in Great Britain for fear that it might offend minorities. Apparently, the uh, the portions of the Church of England have decided to completely abandon the message of Christmas altogether um, for fear that they might offend a Muslim or something. And have gone with the less offensive message of make sure that you use cash instead of plastic this year. <clears throat> we continue with the story here. Um, quote, with credit cards, it's easy to get into serious levels of debt. And one of the big challenges is how to stop a great Christmas becoming a terrible New Year, he said. The advice came as retailers intensified their pre-Christmas discounting to attract recession hit shoppers. Uh, Debenhams announced that it was holding a sale with discounts e- equating to um, 250 million pounds. One of many high street stores responding to a major super uh, supermarket price cutting, according to the consultancy from Price Waterhouse Coopers. 52% of all retailers were offering promotions or discounts last weekend, the same amount as a year ago. Last year, retailers and department stores panicked in the run-up to Christmas, holding a record amount of sales in late November and December, fearing shoppers would drastically cut back on their spending. The 
British retail consortium, which predicts that this year will be slightly less dire for shop, shopkeepers, was not impressed by the Church of England's cons, uh, consumer advice. Richard Dodd at the BRC said, It is wrong to demonize those who want to borrow. Yes, shoppers should not borrow money they can't afford to pay back, but credit is an important device to spread the cost of a of a range of needs and wants at any time, including at Christmas. He also pointed out that during the recession, shoppers had responded by spending less on credit cards and buying more with cash as they budgeted wisely, despite the impression of consumers borrowing irresponsibly given by some quarters. While this is the first time that the church has branched out into Internet videos, it's, it is not the first time that it has felt the need to give consumer advice. Last year, the Bishop of Reading, uh, Reading well, Right Reverend Stephen Cottrell, said people should prune their Christmas card list and only send out a few of those they really love to help save the environment and take the stress out of Christmas. Even the, as as of the time that this was published, the uh, the Telegraph in the UK did note that the video that I referenced and played at audio had only been viewed twenty seven times as of the time the time this was printed. I wonder why. Just you know, like I said, with friends like this in the church, who needs enemies? I mean, who needs to talk about Christ and? the incarnation of God uh, in order for him to live a perfectly righteous and sinless life and uh, in our place and die on the cross for our sins and propitiate God's wrath. And yeah, who needs that? We can talk about something more important, like not sending out too many Christmas cards for fear of not being green enough and harming the environment and or cutting up those credit cards during Christmas so that you don't have a terrible new year. Oh, man. Unbelievable. Do I sound disgusted? I, that That's what I was shooting for. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back, it'll be sermon review time, and we have a sermon from across the pond uh, from uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and he is going to be preaching on a verse in Daniel chapter 11 uh, about uh, trusting in Christ and ex- and doing exploits. That's the, That's how it reads in the authorized version. So you definitely do not want to miss that. It'll be all kinds of good. And uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. Again, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of the sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. 
Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top 10 Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's our sermon review hour. Now, this sermon is a thinker. You know, and so, you know, this this is not me doing commentary and pointing out how ridiculous something is. This one, it requires some thinking. And I think most sermons, most cr- true Christian sermons, it should be ones that make you think. And uh, so with that in mind, we'll dive into our sermon review here. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. This is our second time reviewing a sermon by Pastor, uh, the Right Reverend, if you would, uh, Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. 
And the, the text itself that forms the basis of the sermon is Daniel 11.32. Now, a Pastor Charmley preaches from the authorized version, which is the King James Version. And uh, to do him justice, I'm going to read the verse for you um, from the King James Version, but I'm going to go back and read it, uh, the, add some context around it. This is not an easy text to be preaching on at all. And so on the difficulty scale, Pastor Charmley, I think he's picked a 10. But the verse itself reads, And do and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That's, what the verse, that's the verse that uh, forms the basis of this sermon. Now, Pastor Charmley preached this a couple of years ago at Olton Broad Free Presbyterian Church in Suffolk. And uh, he is currently uh, a, a, you know, a candidate for ministry. He's serving, uh, you know, I guess, he, kind of on a temporary basis as they evaluate him at uh, Bethel Evangelical Free Church in Hanley Stoke on Trent. And um, again, Pastor Charmley, I have the utmost respect for him. And uh, what I like about the sermon, you, what you need to be listening for specifically on this one, aside from the fact that this is a real thinker, you need to apply yourself to the sermon itself, um, is that uh, listen carefully for where good works come from. How, you know, and his use of law and gospel. Again, it's good stuff. I'm going to kill the music here. Now, since one of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith is that uh, we are we strongly advise that when you read a passage, you read it in context. Um, I'm going to add a little bit of context to this and understand that Daniel chapter 11, this is some difficult stuff to interpret. And so, uh, you know, that being the case, let me read again the, tac- the text from the King James. And as such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. Sound like anything you've heard today happening? But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That's that's what forms the basis of the sermon. And now I'm going to read uh, some of this. uh, I'm going to read this passage in context. That's verse 32. I'm going to read... Daniel chapter 11, 29 through about 40, just so you can kind of get a bigger picture of what's going on. And believe me when I tell you, you're going to sit there and go, wow, that, what's that about? <laughs> Here we go. Now, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdrawal, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress, and shall take away the the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand, stand firm and take action or do exploits. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. 
and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or the one beloved uh, beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of, the, of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At that time, at the, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. Synagogue. Seriously, that's what he's going to be preaching on? Yeah, I told you, today is a thinker sermon. And so without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. The name of the sermon is Be Strong and Do Exploits. Look this morning at uh, the chapter that we read, and particularly the second half of verse 32. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And we saw that this second half of the book of Daniel is particularly concerned with the events that were to come to pass between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. They are a guide to what would happen in the world and particularly concerning the Jewish people and the nations around about them in that period when the Lord was not speaking by the prophets. Between the last prophet, Malachi, of the Old Testament and John the Baptist who is the first prophet and the last of the prophets, and the greatest of the prophets, and appears at the opening of the New Testament. And we have in this chapter a description of a king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would take the Holy Land, take Jerusalem, and who would corrupt Jerusalem. In the first half of this verse we have this Declaration that such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. And this is the Jewish people who were merely professing Jews. They were not believers in God. But they did wickedly against the covenant. They were members of the covenant nation of Israel. But they were not truly members of the covenant. And they were corrupted by this wicked man with flatteries. So that he was enabled even to place the abomination that maketh desolate in the very temple of God that he had set up to his glory. We have here in this section the true Israel of God. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And yet we see in verse 33 that though they instructed many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. 
there was this terrible persecution against those who would not agree to do what the wicked king did and worship idols in the place of the one true God. Those who bore witness to the true God were put to the sword and to fire. They were put to death. They were murdered, martyred. We saw that recently in Turkey with those believers who because they would not serve the false god of Islam they were murdered and it is going on day by day in Iraq that Christians are receiving letters to the post saying you have three options first of all you may become a Muslim secondly we will kill you or thirdly leave Iraq notice that uh I think that Pastor Charmley, uh, this Christmas season there in the UK, I bet you anything he's going to be proclaiming the birth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, uh, the God among us, Jesus Christ, God with us, Emmanuel. I, I just get that feeling. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, so glad to hear pastors in the UK who are interested in proclaiming the truth of Scripture as opposed to telling people, make sure they use cash this year instead of credit cards. <sighs> Our brothers and sisters in Iraq are receiving these letters day by day. This persecution, you see, will always go on. So this is not just a chapter for these Jews in that age, but this is a chapter for all believers in the one true God in every age until the Lord Jesus Christ shall come again until the end of this present age of the world when God shall roll up the heavens like a scroll and the earth shall be consumed with fire this chapter this verse applies to us now for this is the divine rule of Bible interpretation that these things that happened to them happened unto them for ensamples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. The spirit of Antichrist is abroad in the world. And it remains abroad in the world. He is in the world now. And so we have these chapters warning us and warning God's faithful people. First of all, we see the identification of these people. They are the people that do know their God. The people that do know their God, they know God. They're not like the men of Athens who have their altar to the unknown God, but they are the people that do know their God. And they are not just those who know that there is a God. There are many around about us who know that there is a God. There are very few atheists in the world. An atheist really has to want to be an atheist. I suppose if you were to go up and down this street, you would find many people. The vast majority of people would say, well, I believe there's a God. I'm not an atheist. Many of them would say, well, I believe that the God of the Bible is truly God. They might not know anything about the Bible's contents, but they would claim to be Church of England. The vast majority of people in this country do that. They know there is a God. And it is not even to know about God. You know, there are some people who have spent all their lives, they've been brought up in Sunday school, 
they sit in the church and maybe on a sound ministry and they hear the word of God opened and explained they know the catechism you could go for them and ask them about any biblical doctrine they could tell you about it but they only know about God they don't know God they can say indeed with the hymn writer the God that rules on high and thunders when he pleases that rides upon the stormy sky and manages the seas that is what God is like they may say but the devils know that and Satan knows far more about God than any of us do he's been around for so much longer than we have but he doesn't know God no it's not enough to be able to talk of that verse by what the God that rules on high no you must be able to say that this awful God this awesome God is ours our Father and our love he will send down his heavenly powers to carry us above it is not just to know about God you see it is to know God this is life eternal says Christ that they may know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent it is to know God not merely to know about God but he's the personal knowledge you know I, I may know about many people I know about the Prime Minister I've never met him I don't know him but there are others other people whom I may say I know and I know very well because I have met them and I have spoken with them I know them and this is what it means to know God it means to have met with God to meet with God to know him and he has a personal knowledge it's not a detached knowledge it's a personal knowledge the people that do know their God it's a personal knowledge of God for the great covenant promise of God is this he says I shall be their God and they shall be my people that is the covenant promise to Israel the covenant promise that then opens up in the New Testament to all believers in every nation elect from every nation they are gathered together as a one people of the living God and he says I shall be their God and they shall be my people there is a covenant bond between God and the church he has made a covenant and he has sworn a covenant he is the God of the covenant and how is God known then? well of course we may talk about the creation makes God known you look at the created order and you can see the marks of a hand upon it you go to a, a little child who has not yet been in, indoctrinated with evolutionary philosophy and they look at everything and they say that, what's it for? what's it for? what's the creation for? it's all for the glory of God that's what the scripture says it's all for the glory of God we may know there is a God by the creation why is it that to be an atheist takes a huge amount of effort? because we know there is a God from the creation but we know most about God we know God best in the scriptures in the word that he has given he has given us 
his word, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, as the psalmist puts it. We have this volume that we may open and we may read. And he has given us the word. Oh, this is brilliant. Notice what he's doing here. He's basically taking, uh, you know, how do we, how can we know about God? Well, you can look at the creation. You can look at general revelation. That's one way of putting it. And the creation, it does declare the glory of God. But as uh, David Hume so um, graciously pointed out, it doesn't tell us if there's one God or a million of them. It, do, it doesn't, you know, the thing is, is that the, General revelation doesn't exactly give us specifics about God. And uh, that's why philosophers and uh, skeptics like to use David Hume's philosophical argument there. And uh, so where is Pastor Charmley pointing us to? The scriptures, which is God's revealed word. It's his revelation of himself. You want to know what God is like, what God is about, what he's done for us? Who he is? Do you want to know God? He's revealed much about himself, intimate knowledge about himself in the scriptures. And he's further revealed more about himself, even more intimate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We continue with Pastor Charmley's excellent, good thinker of a sermon. And he's in the word that we see his glory most exceedingly opened up. We cannot know, for example, that God is love unless he tells us so. If you were to go to the Hindu or to the Muslim and you, you said to them, well, God is love, they would say, no, he isn't. Our scriptures don't say that. Our people don't know. It is only in the Bible that we read that God is love. You go to the savage in the jungle and you say to him, you ask him, is God love? And he will say, certainly not. Our God demands all these sacrifices of us. We're terrified of him. If they only have one, normally they have lots. They're terrified of their gods. But our Bible tells us God is love. That's the only way we can know that God is love, but the Bible tells us so. And what does the Bible tell us about? The Bible tells us about not a what, but a who. The Bible is about Christ. He is in all the scriptures. You may- oh, this is so good. Oh, this is so good. Oh, this is so good. <sighs> Pastor Charmley pointing us to Christ and saying that he's in all the scriptures. These are not greeting card platitudes. This is tough, good, Christ-centered biblical truth. He's preaching the truth. Amen. Good on you, Pastor Charmley. You may go from Genesis to Revelation, and you will find Christ there. You will find him in that promise made to Eve and to Adam of the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head. You will find him at the very beginning as the word through whom all things were created. You may go through the scripture, and you will see Christ everywhere if you can look for him. If you are looking, you will find Christ. And he he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To know Christ is to know the Father. But unless we know Christ, we cannot know the Father. 
not personally we must know Christ would we view his brightest glory the hymn writer asks would we view God's brightest glory here it shines in Jesus' face he is the express image of God's person and the brightness of his glory outside of Christ we can only see the law outside of Christ we can only hear the thundering voice of condemnation oh, this is so good this is just a good cold drink of water after traveling through the seeker-driven desert for the last couple of days this is so good oh. do this and live and we can only look at all our works and say we have not done what we ought to have done and we have sinned against God's holy law and we are utterly condemned that is all we can say outside of Christ if you look at God outside of Christ you are as the Israelites were at Mount Sinai when they cowered at the foot of the mountain as the voice of God sounded but in Christ in Christ we see the love of God it is sweet and solemn pleasure God to view in Christ the Lord here he smiles and smiles forever nowhere else would we say that God is love that often perverted text God is love then we must be willing to point to the, to the cross of Calvary and say herein is love not that God not that we love God but that God loved us and sent his son his only begotten son to be the propitiation for our sins if we can see all our sins on Jesus laid if we can see the son of the lamb of God slain in our place or oh, then we may know that God is love then we can point to the cross and say God loves like that there is the great demonstration of the love of God that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son up to suffer and to die in the very place of sinners everything else that men talk about is mere sentimentality and sentimentalism but this is true love to give up his son in the place of sinners that whoever believes on him might not perish but have everlasting life there we see God we know God in Christ the Lord and we can fall down like the Apostle Thomas and we can say to him my Lord and my God as we see him risen from the dead with the wounds of crucifixion still in his hands and in his feet and in his side we may fall down we must fall down before him if we are his and say my Lord and my God there is a requirement to fall down before our Lord and our God in Christ it is to know him who is God manifest in the flesh who is both a real man and true almighty God but what does the apostle say in Philippians we see him in the third chapter of the epistle to the Philippians talking about his priorities since he became a, a real Christian and he says this chapter 3 and verse verse 8 yea doubtless and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death oh this is to know God in Christ this is a thirsting and a hungering for righteousness not the righteousness of his own he is hungering and thirsting for that righteousness which is of God the righteousness of God which is a gift which is the righteousness of Christ why it is as John Bunyan saw it as one day he was walking burdened by a feeling of his own sin he realized this my righteousness is in heaven seated at the right hand of God the Father for the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord our righteousness so he's made to all who believe he has made their righteousness to know him and be known of him and this is the question you see what is Christ to you what is Christ is he your Lord do you know him as Lord with a right to every service you can pay do you know him as God as with an eternal right to your worship do you know him as your saviour who has died in your place and your righteousness and your only hope is Christ all in all this is what it is to know God in Christ it is to be saved by him to be one of his elect people who has been called out of the world called by grace and brought to know him whom to know is eternal life and this you see is the real Christian the real Christian knows Christ in his life in his death in his resurrection in his ascension and in his eternal ray and, and we'll know him in his coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to gather to himself his people to be with him forever so this is what these people are this is what the true Christian is he is one that does know his God the church of God are the people that do know their God and what do they do? okay all of that was just him literally unfolding from other texts of scripture what it means to know your god from uh, from Daniel 11:32 those who know their god will do exploits what does it mean to know your god and all of that brought us right into Christ and him crucified for your sins you want to know your god what does it mean to know your god we look to Christ and his his hands and feet pierced for your transgressions this is so good <laughs> well this is an outworking of course of what they are they are strong and they do exploits and this comes from the fact they are the people that do know their God they shall be strong not in their own strength there's a lot of people who think that Christ saves us and then we have to do everything else in our own strength 
You go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, you go to the Mormons, they'll say exactly that. God saves you. You go to the Roman Catholics, they'll say that. God saves you in Christ, but then it's up to you. But no, the scripture says it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do. The will, the desire to do, comes from God. And the strength to do comes from God. It's all of God. My strength, he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. It is the strength of God and his strength alone. The strength that's given to the powerless. We sang that, didn't we? That we are strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son. Not our own strength. No, the people of God are powerless in their own strength. They're weak. There are people who are of no account to the world. The world looks at the church. And the world says the church is so weak. There are so few members of the, the true church of Christ. And the world despises the church. Because it's small. And it's weak. But God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound those which are strong. And even the things which in the eyes of the world are not. They're so despicable. They're not. It's as if they don't exist to the world to confound the things that are. God does not just work by the large and the great. We look at a church with a thousand members perhaps and we say, well, but that church can do much. But we should also look at a church of a few members and say, that church can do much because the strength comes from the same place. Our help cometh from the Lord, not from our own selves. It was said of Mr. Spurgeon that you went, that there was a couple of Americans in London. They thought they'd go to hear the two greatest preachers in London. One of them was Joseph Parker of the Sea Temple. Joseph Parker was a very eloquent man, and a very polite man, and quite a humorous man. And they heard him, and they went away thinking, what a great, saying to themselves, what a great preacher that Joseph Parker is. And in the evening they went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Mr. Spurgeon. They didn't hear this flights of oratory that Parker did, this flowery talk. They heard a man in deadly earnest, a little man, an impressive man, a man with a slight Essex accent, speaking the plainest English. And they went out of that church saying, what a great man, what a great God Mr. Spurgeon has. What a great gospel Mr. Spurgeon has. Well that's the truth, isn't it? It's not a matter of having an eloquent man. It's a matter of having a great God. Oh man, let that point sink in. So what does your pastor do? When you, when you uh, leave, do you sit there and go, boy, that was a great sermon by my pastor. What a great pastor. What a great speaker he is. Or do you leave going, wow, what a great God I have. Whew. Unbelievable. This is so good. That's our strength. It's not the strength of flesh and blood. But, as Luther put it in his wonderful Reformation hymn, but for us fights the proper man, whom God himself hath bidden, 
And who is that man? He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He has said, I will build my church. He is the one that fights for us. It's all God's strength. And that's why we may be confident. Oh, if I look to my own strength, I've got nothing but distrust. No confidence at all. We are those that have no confidence in the flesh. I look at Christ and I say, there is my strength, and there is my righteousness, and there is my all in all. It is Christ who is our strength. So they shall be strong because they have God as their strength. And do exploits. Well, my time is almost gone. But oh, we, we could spend hours talking about the exploits the Church of God has done. We look at the Apostles. Ignoring the Old Testament completely, we mean just look at the apostles. Every one of them, with the possible exception of John, died for the faith. Peter was brought before the imperial tribunal and put to death. The apostle Paul was taken to Rome and put to death. And all the apostles were put to death, one by one. And the men who came after them, the church leaders they had trained up, we might point to a man like Polycarp, they were put to death. Polycarp was slaughtered, Christians were thrown to the lions, young men and women, old women. This is his definition of an exploit. Dying for Christ. Dying for bearing the name. Participating in his sufferings. This is an exploit. <laughs> oh, this is so good. This is so contrary to the culture and the way everyone thinks by nature. This is beautiful. Wow. They were thrown to the lions in the Roman arena for sport. And yet would they deny would they deny Christ? He said to deny Christ and live. I said, I will not deny Christ, I will die. And we can see that time after time they were strong and they did exploits, though they were the most contemptible of people because they did know their God. We might look to a man like Athanasius in the, in the 4th century, the great Bishop of Alexandria, the man who stood against all the world for the deity of Christ. When men said to him, Athanasius, all the world is against you, he said, then he's Athanasius against the world. If Christ is not God to all the world, he said, he is God to me, because I find it in the scriptures. He was hunted like a criminal in the mountains and in the deserts of Egypt. He was forced to live in exile, set up, set up on false charges of murder and sorcery because men would kill him. This is, a, this, this is heroism indeed. They said to him, just say Jesus is not God. Just say that Jesus is not God and you can come back to your church, back to your congregation, back to all the people you love. He said, I will not say that. And he is everlasting God. And so we have a great history, a great cloud of witnesses as it were. We may look at the Waldenses in the, in the great 
period of the Roman apostasy when Europe seemed overrun with error and the gospel was almost unknown and there were those in those little valleys in the Alps who kept the truth pure and they were murdered in their hundreds hunted down little children rolled down the mountainsides and hurled from cliffs because their parents would not give up Christ and then the parents were hurled down as well this is what the people that do know their God have done you may go to Norwich and you will see the Lollard's Pit there's a road called Lollard's Road where dozens of godly men and women were burned to death because they would not give up Christ alone and scripture alone and they would not embrace the Roman church but they said we must I must go with Christ and they were taken outside the walls outside the gate and there, with, there they suffered as Christ suffered outside the gate not to redeem anyone but as witnesses for him who had redeemed their souls and all time would fail to speak of the persecutions of the Protestants in France and in Holland of the Puritans suffering in this country of Wesley and Whitfield and the preachers of the Great Awakening some of whom were put to death for Christ by the mob we would not have time to speak of Mr. Spurgeon who died young because he contended so earnestly for the faith of men who had given up position and prestige and all for Christ have gone forth without the camp to bear witness to him the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits we see that borne witness to in history we see it and all then shall we not strive to know our God in prayer and in Bible study to know our God and therefore let us be very discriminating and discerning about the preaching we attend to it is a glorious thing to be able to attend upon a preaching where God is made known but do you think the reason why England is now so full of closed chapels is that all of them preached heresy no many of them preached a milk and water gospel so called that doesn't save anybody it wasn't heresy oh man uh, yeah, it, was it rank heresy that destroyed the churches in England? No, it was the milk and water gospel, the gospel that can't save anyone. The seeker-driven, felt preaching to felt needs, being relevant, giving good advice, that gospel. That false gospel, completely powerless to convert anyone. <sighs> this is just deep streams of cold, refreshing water. Oh, it was without content at all they didn't preach heresy because they didn't preach anything well then doctrinal preaching doctrine teaching about Christ about God we must seek ever we must ever seek that preaching that lifts up Christ well my time is gone but before I finish let me repeat this story of a, a young man 
who was a minister in Norwich many, many years ago, a man called John Alexander. His father was an evangelist, William Alexander. They called him the Lancashire Apostle because he went up and down Lancashire preaching the gospel wherever he could. And his son was called by God to Christ and he was converted. And he then had a call to the ministry. He felt that he was being called to the ministry of the gospel. And he would go to a theological college in London to educate him for that ministry. And old William Alexander, he'd never been to a theological college. But he thought it was fine for his son to go, but he wrote a letter to his son before he did. And he said this in it. I say, John, preach Christ. Don't say Christ is not in the text. You see a lot of purely academic colleges, they will say to you, well, Christ isn't in this text. And you might go to a man after preaching who's been to a, a very academic college, and say to him, well, why didn't you preach Christ? And he'll say, well, Christ wasn't in the text. And this is what William Alexander was afraid of. Don't say Christ is not in the text. He is in the Bible. That is, that is enough. That will do. He's in the Bible. Put man down and put Christ up. Well, that's the sort of preaching that's needed today. Put, put man down, put man in his place. He's a sinner. Oh, this is so good. Oh, man. This is the message that not only Great Britain needs to hear, this is the message that you and I need to hear. I can't get enough of hearing about Christ. The other day I was listening to a sermon and the pastor was preaching Christ. And one part of me said, you know, I've heard the story a million times. And the other part of me said, yeah, and I can't wait to hear it a million more. You know, I remember my, my children when they were small, when they were toddlers. You know, especially my daughter, Christina. You'd, I, you'd read a story to her, and you'd no sooner finish it, and she'd go, again? 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 Tell me about Christ again. Tell me about the forgiveness of sins again. Tell me about my sins and my wonderful Savior who died on the cross for my sins. I cannot hear this story enough. And yet, tragically, pastors and churches treat that story as if, oh, that's just baby stuff. Come on. We heard that the day we, quote, made a decision to get on the rat wheel to... You see what I'm saying? Christians don't need to hear that. They already know it. How many times have you heard that? No, I don't want to know anything except for Christ and him crucified. Really, I, I don't want to know anything. And I can now read the story of Joseph and, and find Christ and him crucified. I, I can read the story of David and find Christ and him crucified. The story of Esther and I can find Christ and him crucified. I can read of all the sinners in the Old Testament and in the New. 
It doesn't matter if I'm reading a major prophet or a minor prophet or the Psalms. I see Christ and Him crucified. It's all about Him. And it's all about Him and what He's done for you. And if you think it's all about you, the things you need to do to please God, you're missing the whole story. The gospel is just past you like a ship in the fog at night. Ah, oh, this is so good. Put him down. But put Christ up and put him up. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me, he says. Well, put him up. Lift him up. That's the sort of teaching that we need. Oh, let us seek that teaching and support that teaching. Christ is lifted up. And all oh, that we may know our God indeed. Every one of us may know God and be strong and do whatever exploits God has laid out for us to the honour and praise of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Oh. Oh, man. That was so good. Pastor Charmley, thank you so much for sending this to me to play for our audience. Folks, that's Christian preaching that you just heard. That's the kind of preaching that exalts Christ and raises him up so that he can draw amen to himself. That's what Christ-centered preaching sounds like. Even from an obscure, difficult-to-interpret passage from the book of Daniel. That they may know their God and be strong in Him and do exploits. Huh. I don't think I can add anything more to that. Folks, if you find the sermon reviews that I do here at Fighting for the Faith to challenge you and push you to see the proper distinction of law and gospel, to see the importance of preaching the law to, as Pastor Charmley said, to put man down and to exalt Christ, the gospel, preach the gospel, then will you support this radio outreach by becoming a member of the Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith crew? It is a mere $6.95 a month. Two and a half gallons of gas a month is what it, it costs you. But that small amount of money multiplied over a thousand people makes it possible for us to bring this important radio outreach and do what we do here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio to reach the world and exalt Christ and Him crucified for our sins. You can join our crew by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the Join Our Crew button. Or, if you would like, you can click on the Donate button and, and donate a flat amount. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. 
Well, we are rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'll save the seeker-driven guy giving the answer to whether or not Mormons are Christians for tomorrow. I will play that on tomorrow's program, so you don't want to miss that. And uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Again, my name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ in his vicarious death on the cross, even for a sinner as wretched as you and as me. Amen.